I'm Corey Astell. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with your investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at ConsMinds at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 88, we read History Has Begun by Bruno Maceias, published in 2020. Bruno Maceias is a Portuguese political scientist, business strategist, and author. He studied at the University of Lisbon and Harvard University, where he earned his doctorate. He served as Secretary of State for European Affairs in Portugal during the 08-09 credit crisis and is a non-resident senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. All right, so Maceias, we're going to say Maceias in the hope that uh, we're pronouncing it correctly. Sorry, Bruno, if it's not, but um, anyway, Maceias says... uh, the values that have guided Western politics for decades or even centuries still seem true to most of us in the West, but they no longer seem inevitable. You and I, Kyle, have read multiple books on this, um, li- mm-hmm. Why Liberalism Failed, and you know several others basically saying that uh, that even though Fukuyama said that we had reached the end of history, the end, and uh, the liberal order, Enlightenment had won out, apparently we're s- lots of folks are rethinking that. And for the moment, he says, Western values seem in retreat. They are certainly not advancing, much less being irresistibly carried to every corner of the earth. If the West falters, he says, America will want to become less Western. As the fulcrum of the world power moves away from the West, so will America. If ever the United States becomes convinced that the West belongs to the past, he argues, it could leave Europe living in the past, but it America itself will not be inclined to remain in the past itself. This book, he says, is an attempt to examine the subtle processes by which a new way of looking at the world slowly extends to every facet of individual and collective life. If it succeeds, American civilization will turn out to be something completely original. And in this book, he argues uh, for a future scenario he calls it uh, the development of a new indigenous American society separate from modern Western civilization rooted in new feelings and thoughts. And it is a creative look and uh, we we're going to have some disagreements with his ideas here, but to my mind, they're definitely creative and made me think and um, shed new light and ways of thinking that I really hadn't before. Yeah, they definitely make you think and you can tell he's, he's read a lot and considered a lot and, and there's a, clearly an intelligent man but it's hard he he uh, talks a lot about Tocqueville in in chapter two not to leap too far ahead of ourselves but and how he sort of Tocqueville saw and we read democracy in America uh, more than a year ago at this point but as we talked about in that podcast Tocqueville saw America as sort of like the continuation of European civilization here in the new world and uh, Viseas doesn't think that's really true i mean we clearly have european roots european language and and a lot of that culture did transfer across the ocean but he sees it as a as a different thing and sees this thing that is not western civilization as perhaps being the new coming thing the new his, the new the new history and he doesn't mention fukuyama but the title seems to be sort of a direct refutation of Fukuyama's end of history, right? Like you said, mm-hmm. I I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to think of us. Uh, America might not be purely Western, but I feel like I'm so Western. It's hard to understand things that aren't Western because I'm, I'm trying to get my head around what this would be. 
and I see what he, I mean, I'm reading the words and, but it's like when we read Marcuse, uh, this is a lot more readable than Marcuse, but what they're kind of getting at the same problem is imagining is something, a different way of looking at the world. And that's hard to describe when you're standing in the world that is, I think that in itself sort of says something about how America might not be just the mirror image of Europe or the extension of Europe, but there's a lot like Europe. I mean, those mm -hmm. Western ideas, I think, and he's not saying that it's going to be completely different. I don't think, but it's, I don't, I don't think it's really different at all, except sort of, I don't know. I mean, I kind of agree with Tocqueville. I think this is sort of just democracy without the constraints of Europe and, you know, live, you know, set up here in the new world to sort of blossom in its fullest capacity. So it, it it's, it's hard to, it's hard to exactly get a handle for me anyway, on what he's trying to say is, is different, but there's, well, I mean, it, we'll go into it. There, there are some things where he says that we're not clearly just the continuation of the Western order and the, the liberal democratic order and, the way we interpret those things is even where we're saying the same things, we're doing something different than Europeans are doing. Yeah. So he, I mean, the first uh, several chapters of the book is essentially kind of a history lesson. I think, I think more or less telling us where America has been. And as you just described, he, he basically says in or about 1945, the United States became a European power. And before that, prior to 1945, it was essentially America was, was uh, a little brother to, to Europe and a wannabe, more or less. In 1945, the United States, of course, uh, victorious in uh, World War II, becomes the penultimate sort of European power. Europe had collapsed under its weight. He says the former center of world power was now under the absolute control of what had originally been no more than a remote dependency of European civilization. So kind of Europe's little brother. But after World War II, I mean, the Europeans started rebuilding and started looking for he says political truth and directions diametrically opposite to those tried before. So it was kind of a, a reaction to the, I guess the, the European countries, Germany and so forth that had gone off the rails. And of course we know that in France in particular, but in uh, even in uh, the UK, I mean, they seem to be seduced by communism, many factions um, and for, kind of following that path for a while. And, uh, and in any event, he says, uh, where, where kind of Europe has ended is the complete opposite of everything they've tried before. And he, he says, uh, the end of borders, the abdication of the nation state, the pure technocracy of the European union. And the American response to that has been, well, Europe's answers are, are no answers at all. And essentially like, will sink the individual into deeper and deeper forms of social control, he says. So where America, he spends many chapters actually, or several chapters, many pages talking about basically the how America grew up and moved beyond um, Europe. But today he says, I mean, he, I think he, he has this little teaser uh, in chapter one and uh, that uh, gets gets further developed later on, but he says today, the proposition that the whole planet is on a course to embrace Western civilization is no longer credible. Perhaps the United States is only just entering its highest period where its individual possibilities will be realized. 
Remember that the pyramids were built near the beginning of an Egyptian civilization and more than 2,000 years before its conventionally accepted end. So, I mean, he really thinks that uh, America is just getting started. Like now, it, in 1945, it finally uh, moved from little brother to big brother, and now it's kind of like leaving the family <laughs> and ready to develop uh, in a whole new direction. Yeah, I I think... And he points out some ways that were different, and I think some of them are too facile, maybe too much. You know, Americans do this, Europeans do that. Sometimes it's true, though. And I was I was looking at the same line you just quoted about deeper and deeper forms of social control, as as what the Europeans are doing in reaction to the sort of collapse and failure of World War II, and just looking at Western civilization and saying, well, if it if it produced this. We have to really rethink things because it's just too much. It's just too bad. So, yeah, so they end up with the EU and the Schengen Agreement. And eh, I don't know. That always felt like not like, like not a place, not a thing, just sort of a, a blandness. And, yeah, it is sort of weird social control. Just it feels boring. That feels like an end of history to me. Whereas he says... Um, Americans opted to look for ways in which one might simply escape from reality rather than embark on the risky venture to change it. And a lot of this book is about how we could perceive of reality. And that is, um, I mean, if that's something different that's coming, it's a, it's a future that's disturbing to me because it, and I think we've talked about the nature of reality enough on this podcast that listeners will know we think it's real and there are things that exist and don't exist and you can't, wish them away or refuse to accept them. He talks, I mean, he also talks about Turner's frontier thesis about how as we moved in into the interior, we moved away from our European roots and became more free, more individualistic, more wild, maybe something else altogether than what we started as on the Eastern seaboard. And there's something to that, but then he also kind of leads into this, American conception of truth that is different from the European conception. He quotes, he talks about William James, the philosopher, who says, James did not argue there's no truth. He argues that there are many truths and that they're equally good and wholesome, even when they contradict each other. I don't, I don't, I don't know that that's how most people consciously think. I, I mean, we see it enough that people, I mean, both sides will say to the other, you're not entitled to your own facts you know, when we think we have the right facts, but people do feel entitled to their own facts pretty often. So, I mean, maybe it's, maybe it is happening. Maybe that's different. And maybe that is sort of an artifact of our technological development. And he talks a lot about how that figures into it, about how television changes the way we look at things like, like Postman's book said, but it's, uh, I don't, I don't know that we're consciously living in a realm of individual realities as much as maybe some people on the academic left would like to see the world that way, I, I don't think the average American actually thinks about life as, you know, there are many truths and they're all equally good. I, I mean, that's, that, that's probably true. But I think uh, the interesting idea that he has, at least in my mind, is he says, uh, he says Europe and America draws fundamentally different conclusions from the fact of relativism, where in Europe the conclusion that they've come to is 
there is no truth. So therefore, uh, the narratives of nation and religion and money is all fiction. You know, they probably say, they probably agree with a lot of the critical theory of, you know, everything's a fiction, your sex is a a fiction, your skin color, and that sort of thing. But the conclusion that Americans take, he says, is what he's arguing is, yeah, relativism, relativism is a fact, but what that means is the world is a stage. <laughs> the conclusion that he comes to is that that uh, uh, American life, he says, continuously emphasizes its own artificiality. So uh, all the possibilities may not be real, and America accepts that. And the conclusion it draws, instead of instead of uh, drawing inward into nihilism, like more or less what he's arguing the Europeans have done, and trying their best to muddle through and keep everyone you know, kind of so wrapped around the actual of technocracy and, and uh, consensus that Americans look at the, the fact of relativism and say, everything's a story and we're going to make it a dang good story. You know? yeah. <laughs> the American way of life, he says, is consciously storytelling, plot and form and is meant to draw attention to its status as fiction. A society of stories, if it wants to live up its to a, live up to its ideal, cannot be a society of fully resolved conflicts and contradictions. So all of the conflicts, all of the contradictions, it's just part of the story. It's just part of the narrative. And he says, Americans see the world as an action movie where the Europeans see it as a documentary and, and a dour one that, at that, you know, um, you know, he talks about how the Europeans have still not gotten over the moral ruins of Auschwitz and, uh, and Nazism. And so basically their entire civilization is, is a reaction to Nazism and a repudiation and trying to move beyond it where Americans just don't see the world that way. I think that's true. I think that's, Europe is definitely still dealing with the horrors that some of them committed in those days. And I don't know, we never did anything that bad, but I think if we did, we still wouldn't dwell on it today. You know, people, right. Some, some people right. would, but Americans are not like that. We move on. We're still talking about slavery an awful lot, but, I don't know if it obsesses us as a nation the way that the horrors of the Second World War and the Holocaust and everything else do to them. Yeah, I was thinking, I think he's right about that. Um, I think that theory definitely applies to how Americans and Europeans have dealt with religion since the war. Whereas Europeans are just increasingly falling away from it. And we have two to some extent, but I think our answer is often just, well, we'll just have 10,000 different sects and, you know, each one will have their own version of the, you know, capital T truth and the word. And, and, you know, we'll all, you don't like it, go to a different church. Somebody else will say something that you, that does make sense to you. Mm-hmm. I think that, and in that way, we've always been that way because we've always been pluralist. We've never been, we've never had a national established church and that's always been part of our character so maybe and and he talks about the american dream as also sort of a denial of reality i that sounds negative when you first read it but in a way i mean the pre-frontier american dream was like literally relocating yourself to start a new reality and it doesn't mean that it's unreal it's or not true or not not absolute but sure the idea of going west and saying instead of being in this uh this slum in this big city on the East coast, I'm just, I'm going to get 40 acres of land and just farm it. 
and then I'll make a new reality for myself out there. So that's kind of true. Um, where he sees us continuing to diverge, I really I think we're getting closer together. I think as the frontier has been closed forever and as our some of our industries have declined, I, I think we're getting more to be like a settled country or a settled continent the way Europe is a settled continent where there's change possible and laws can change and people can change, but it's it's a society that has mostly been written. And I don't mean that in the sense of what's about to be over, but just in the sense that the basic rules have been sketched out. There's no new land. There's no new... There are new industries sometimes. I mean, the tech industry is new comparatively, but there's not... We're a little more settled in that way. And also Europe is dealing with immigrants like they never did before. So I think that pushes them closer to us because it makes some of these open borders, international institutions things look different. And I think some of the parts of Europe that are sort of moving beyond the post-war consensus in good ways and bad are looking at that change in the same way that people over here are looking at that change, looking at like what's happening on our Mexican border when tens of thousands of refugees are coming in and just being let loose in the country with no way to track them or whatever. When that's been happening in Europe in the past few years, uh, a lot of them aren't liking it and they're not liking it in the same way or maybe even a more extreme version of the way some of us don't like it. So I, I, I've seen us as converging and he, um, he makes some good points about just the nature of the, the way democracy has been enacted in the new world compared to the old and the, and these longer term trends. But to me, I, I, I think that's only part of the story. Yeah. Well, I think a few of his ideas are worth, worth, uh, picking apart though a little bit. Cause mm-hmm. he says, uh, the new America is founded on a principle of unreality. Everyone can pursue his or her own happiness so long as they refrain from imposing it on others as something real, as something valid for all. When commentators complain that American society and politics no longer seems real, they miss the promise of unreality. The real world has many disadvantages. What happens in reality has final consequences. Many of those consequences cannot be undone. Essentially what he's saying is America has, uh, has views the world as a stage and where Europe is trying to move in the, towards the really the Fukuyama vision of kind of the the arc of history and the the final you know the where we finally made it to uh, utopia or whatever uh, versus in America there's just this attitude of everything is everything is fake news everything there is no truth so everything is true you know every whatever I think is just as true as what you think and. Trump, he says, he uses as a perfect as a great example. I thought this was really interesting. Trump is a reality television star who filled the White House with media personalities and runs the administration like a television series, carefully staging distinct storylines where conflict and crisis are used to power the plot before the the announced fully scripted resolution. Old rules are being broken in the range of ideas tolerated in public discourse. The famous Overton window continues to expand. Suddenly being a socialist is no, no longer places you outside the boundaries of what is politically acceptable. I mean, I think that that's totally true. Mm-hmm. AOC uses example. Her Green New Deal is carefully crafted, not as a policy plan, but as a quest capable of drawing crowds to her events and filling endless hours of cable news coverage, not because of the policy proposals, but because her entry into national politics was straight out of a fairy tale. I mean, this is exactly right. The, the Green New Deal is, is a symbol 
I mean, it's, it's full of completely impractical nonsense. And, uh, and even if you push Democrats, if you really, uh, nail them to the wall they'll agree yeah okay maybe that's not possible but it's the vision right that's it's the story that's being told he says the point is to tell a great story to put on a show at least equal to the historical moment but to do so from the stable standpoint of society in its current form uh ocasio cortez explained the foundations of her political philosophy this is her quote she said we have to become master storytellers everyone in public service needs to be a master storyteller my advice is to make arguments with your five senses and not five facts. And man, did she uh, did she manifest that this past week or past couple of weeks where she went to this uh, $35,000 a plate gala and of course has to pay to get in. And then, uh, and then where's this dress that says tax the rich, which obviously is a, a complete like performance. And, uh, and the, the very next week she votes against uh, the iron dome funding for for israel which is essentially uh protecting israel against uh like hamas rockets mm-hmm. and she voted against it and she was interviewed by this reporter who obviously was friendly but was asking her the questions of like what is it that you oppose she had no answer at all it was a complete word salad in other words like it it was the symbol like i she she was basically saying i'm i'm you know i'm i'm worried about uh the you know oppression of people or something like that and you're kind of like okay but what's the oppression exactly and uh i think what maseus is kind of saying here is both on uh on the on the right and on the left those that are kind of the loudest voices and the biggest faces um they politics is a performance and it's more than that it's it's more than just performing for the camera it's also like staging everything as well and, uh, mm-hmm. and I think what Maseus is arguing is that's what the American people want. The reason it's working is because that's what people want. They want, they want the grand narrative. They want the big story. They want, they want everything to fit in. You know, if you're on the blue side, you want everything to, to fit in on the blue side and, and you're that, that train of thought. And if you're on the red side, you want everything to fit in on the red kind of philosophy of the world. And, uh, there's not, there's not a, there's not a middle ground. It's like everything needs to fall neatly into the performance and, and it has to, cl- you know, like Trump was always m- much more interested in the, in the stage than he was. He obviously didn't care much about policy, didn't know much and, and always uh, sort of left that to, to Congress to figure out. And what he was concerned with is making sure that there was the grand moment and the, the, the you know, the, the, the uh, triumphant um, arrival and, and so forth. I mean, it's a really interesting way of thinking about politics, which I, you know, many people have <clears throat> pointed out the performance aspect of it, but it's a little bit different to say this is the next stage in uh, in liberalism is essentially going beyond this, going beyond liberalism to this new illiberal form where everyone kind of is a, a stage actor, <laughs> and that's what the people want. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we're there for sure, and I'm glad. I mean. I was thinking of that same, the Met Gala thing with AOC. When she was interviewed, she said, we can't just play along. We need to break the fourth wall and challenge some of the institutions. Breaking the fourth wall is what somebody on TV does when they look at the camera and talk to it. You know, like a, a, yeah. like a character in a fictional show, when they, when they look at the camera and sort of address the viewer directly, it's sort of a weird thing because that's not how TV shows typically work. That's the fourth wall. It's, it's, a, it's what fake people do. You know, it's what, what fictional characters do, not 
members of Congress are supposed to address the voters because they live in reality. <laughs> like that's, they all, there is no wall. Like there's no fourth wall, first wall, third wall. They're just, you know, they're living real life. She's used that phrase a bunch of times and I don't know, maybe she's just misusing it or maybe it suggests something deeper, but it's, it's definitely the same. I mean, she and Trump have the same performative instincts and, and the, the ability to say dramatic things and capture the camera. I, I don't know. And you said Trump doesn't know a lot about policy. He knows he wants it to work because that makes a good ending. Right. Right. Like, I don't know that he, a lot of the positions he ended up taking, I mean, who knows why, you know, why, why, you know, on trade, he had pretty much been saying the same thing for 30 years, but on everything else he was, you know, he, he ended up on a certain place by inauguration day and that's where he stayed. But, yeah, yeah, like with judges, he wanted it to be a success because the success is a good end to that chapter, and it's a good uh, thing to say to the voters. And it's you know, look, look how great I am. I did this for you. He tells um, Messias tells another story about Trump from 2019, where he was talking to uh, the NATO Secretary General uh, Stoltenberg, and they were talking about Germany. And Trump says, my father was German, born in a very wonderful place. <laughs> and as Messias points out, Trump's father was born in Bronx, New York. <laughs> now, I mean, the first part of that statement, my father was German. His parents were German, right? So, I mean, people say that, you know. I mean, people say, oh, I'm Irish, but it means your grandparents are from Ireland, right? Like, people say this. But when he says born in a very wonderful place in Germany, that's just not true. And and I like that Messias goes through a lot of the conventional explanations of why Trump was the way he, why he talked the way he did, you know, people on the left were like, well, he's, it's a dictator's trick of just assaulting the truth so much. The truth itself is destroyed. And, you know, we talked about gaslighting a lot over the past four years, you know, because of that, uh, Ingrid Bergman movie. And, you know, Messias says more, he, he has a simpler explanation and it's one that rings true for me. Trump's performing and, and that's a better story for that moment. You know, it, it, what did he say? It's, uh, People want, uh, Trump said in, in one of his books, people want to believe that something is the biggest and the greatest and the most spectacular. Messiah says lying to improve reality is not really lying from that point of view. Yeah. And I, I think that's, uh, if you think everything is, is entertainment, that's true. I mean, what, you know, it's, it's the same way as when a book is adapted for TV, they change stuff because it works better on the screen than, yeah. than it, you know, that, then something different would have. And it's that, you know, it's not a lie. It's an adaptation. But yeah. I mean, those things are fake, so who cares? They're fiction. But you get that, and I think, I think what he's saying is that we're so into the war, the unreality, the TV-based world, internet-based world, you know, that we're all so shaped by that medium that we don't even realize we're doing it. Yeah, and he says uh, the American people. He uses pop American populism. But this, it also holds true for kind of the progressive left. But, you know, it's a, it's a government completely uninterested in the question of truth. He says public authorities no longer affirm a set of political truths. They are in the fantasy business. If the state has no claim to truth, every way of life can be freely promoted or broadcast. Welcome to the television society, a place of opposites and contradictions where something completely different is always available on a different channel. That's kind of, kind of what you just described. And I mean, the news uh, media anymore today, 
I mean, I, I, I think there's two or three sources where I generally pretty much uh, trust what they have to say as, as more or less fact. Everything else I just read as like, here's one person's opinion. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. I think if you read any reporter, certainly from uh, what, what traditionally would have been viewed as the, as the, the bedrock, you know, truth tellers, the New York Times or CNN. I mean, I just view that as one left-wing person's view of the world, you know, which I think is important yeah. for me to stay on top of just because of the nature of my work. But in and of itself, I don't read that as, you know, as fact. And, um, and obviously uh, on the right you have, I mean, the Fox News is, is in the entertainment business and tells a lot of truth, but also, you know, carries a narrative, in a, in, in, you know, in a, in their own way. Mm-hmm. He, he uses COVID, uh, the entire episode of COVID as, as a, as a really interesting illustration. I thought this was his best stuff, but he says, uh, first, this is about COVID Trump. First Trump evaded reality by believing there was no problem. Then everyone else evaded reality by believing Trump was the problem. (laughs) And he's like, I can detect three distinct stages in the way America approached the pandemic. First was denial or oblivion, you know? And then finally, you know, one day Trump was calling the coronavirus a hoax. The next he was making a major television announcement to the nation. (laughs) While in China or Italy, the new uh, coronavirus was regarded as a technical problem to be solved. In America, it quickly became a great dramatic narrative. He says, uh, comparing the reaction of the United States to that in other countries, what strikes me is how the virus is almost irrelevant. What matters is what the different characters think, say, and do. The clash between those characters and between the characters in the world, their mental conflicts, the narrative digressions, whether Trump will fire his chief medical officer, for example. Just as in a disaster movie or television series, the epidemic provides a backdrop for action. And he 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 he, uh, he talks about uh, this this concept of a MacGuffin. So um, Alfred Hitchcock uh, he he came up with this uh, description where it's it's a, it's a it's an element in many movies where there's a he calls it a device or gimmick that propels the story forward. You know, it's what the heroes need to get or reach. And it's it's essentially a backdrop, so, and they call and Hitchcock called that a MacGuffin. Like you don't actually need to achieve the whatever. You don't actually have to get it. It's the story of the journey or whatever. So it it provides the backdrop to the story to move things along, you know. And he says uh, when America turned from the virus to protest, it also revealed that the fight against the pandemic was after all just a story, and it wasn't necessary to the narrative. Uh, which could be replaced by a better story in this case, like, uh, you know, racial justice and so forth. So in the case of the pandemic, the virus is what gives meaning to the story. That's this is, it's the MacGuffin. It's everything the characters care about, but it stays in the background overshadowed by their actions and passions. And so he uses the example. I just think this is such good stuff. It's interesting thing. He says, uh, the press briefings where for weeks and months, Trump appeared in front of his health experts to answer questions. <laughs> he stood in front of him, you know, about the pandemic, followed the logic of spectacles, sometimes taken to implausible extremes. And obviously Cuomo was doing the exact same thing. And this was happening with, uh, with um in california uh, you know so, so multiple governors and and of course like the media was just eating up these uh these democratic governors and and cuomo's daily press briefing and he's a, he's a, you know it was a complete uh television staged event where he's there and he's he's in control and 
And uh, one one reporter described it as uh, these were not traditional press conferences. They are not evidence of government inaction. They are not news. They are re- reality TV shows <laughs> that have no w- winners. And here's my final that I'll read here it says over the period of three weeks in April, the president tweeted five times about his ratings, which he frequently <laughs> said were through the roof. <laughs> This is so good, and what an interesting way to to describe yeah. it. And I think, to me, it just rings absolutely true. Yeah, and he, I, I like where he says the, the principle of unreality is an answer, the specifically American answer to the shallowness shallowness of life in the modern liberal society. He and he, he tells a story uh, at one point about uh, a hostage who had been uh, on a hijacked flight in the eighties. The flight got taken to Lebanon. And he says, when you get to Beirut, you live war. You hear it, you smell it, it is real. Maybe appreciate our freedom, the things we take for granted. We sit here in the living room, the sun's setting, the baby's sleeping. We can watch television, change channels. We have choices. So, I mean, even then, I mean, this is uh, nearly 40 years ago, this was being said, the, the analogy of uh, changing the channel, which is what we did in the third step you talked about there when we decided uh, that story's over, it's boring. We're going to move on to uh, yeah. social justice. That's a different channel, <laughs> you know. And that's and part of that is you can only achieve that level of unreality or insouciance or whatever you disregard for the truth, disregard for real life. If things are mostly good, the guy in Beirut who was in the eighties living through a civil war, and it, there are still places in the world that are dealing with that. Or, or worse, you know, that somebody on the the occupied part of Ukraine, you know, he's dealing with Russian troops taking over part of his country. He's not changing that channel. That channel doesn't change. You know, there, there's a tank in your town, you know, and a, and a, with a foreign soldier driving it. That's real. But we we have achieved so much and so much, even even when we're not at peace, our wars are somewhere else. And they're increasingly fought by a, a smaller self-selecting group so that many families will go through the entire past 20 years of war without really even knowing any soldiers, let alone any who got hurt or killed. So we, we, we've so far isolated ourselves from the real horrors of the world. I would have thought that something like Corona would sort of wake us up to that because um, it was real, you know, and whatever, whatever narrative you're spinning across it and whether it's you're blaming the Sanctus or Cuomo or Trump or Biden, you know, it's real. People are getting sick and dying. That should have forced us not to change the channel, but then we went and changed it. So, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I, I don't like Messias's vision of unreality, but I can't deny that he's right about some of it. It's like, it's like when we read Carl Schmidt and some of those things he was saying were ugly, but they were also accurately described the way people act sometimes yeah yeah you know and it's like i don't i don't want to believe that that level of tribalism like i don't want to believe that level of you know myopia in in a in an entire country saying i can make my own reality but as he says i mean he quotes carl rove in 2002 talking about the the uh build up to war in iraq he said we're an empire now and when we act we create our own reality uh, I mean, I I wonder if he's, I wonder if Rove was just being dramatic, but maybe not. I mean, maybe I don't think he really believed we're changing, you know, fundamental facts about the universe by invading a country. But we did 
drive the narrative. And that's, I mean, you hear so much people in politics talk about narratives and optics and all of these words that are about how things look, not what they are. Yeah. We used to look down on that sort of thing, you know, but now, I mean, Biden administration is making policy based on optics right now. Like the, uh, there were some pictures that from the border just uh, about a week ago, as we're recording this of a border patrol on horses. And somebody said they were whipping uh, Haitians back into the, into the river. And that went viral, you know? And then uh, a couple of days later, everyone who was on the scene was like, no, there was no whips. Yeah. yeah. Nobody had a whip. Uh, But, Already, the Biden administration has said they're going to take away those guys' horses. They can't patrol on horseback anymore. Okay, I mean you're 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 making policy based on something that's fake. So, I guess that's yeah. You're responding to the story, and it reminds me a lot of the that uh, those kids from the Covington Catholic School or whatever. Mm-hmm. It just yeah. the narrative was just too perfect that that they're wearing MAGA hats on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and they're harassing this. Uh, this uh, Native American guy. Well, it turns out that that Native American guy is just a rabble rouser and a and uh, he he had, he's just moved around the country like doing protests, and he's the one who got up in their face. And as soon as we kind of realized that, it was kind of like, oh, okay, that, well, that's not as qu- anywhere near as interesting. So moving along, yeah, you know, we're not going to take time to. I mean, at this point, you you could imagine to your to your prior point. I mean, you could imagine you know another World War II. They're called the the greatest generation, I think, for the reason of you had Americans who really came together, you know, and and saw themselves as rowing in the same direction and fighting the same cause, and uh, and it really builds cohesion. Mm-hmm. And uh, and one would have thought that maybe COVID could have done that, <laughs> yeah. but but instead, I think what Maseus would say is we're we're beyond that now. At this point, you know, yeah, maybe if we were truly under attack like if it were sarajevo or something but at this point essentially everything is going to just fall into the the you know is, is going to be staged or performed and uh used as a uh, a backdrop a MacGuffin to the grander narratives that are more interesting like coronavirus mm, you know at first it's kind of scary but then you're kind of like well this is just something that's there and how are we gonna you know how, how are the great actors and the in the the visionaries and and uh, the bold actors and on the on the on the world stage, how are they going to respond? You know, versus like, how do we deal with this coronavirus? <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, how do we actually? Uh, what are what are the X's and O's? And and honestly, you know, I, I think that um, the CDC has is just one example of another after uh, after another of this organization that just. Can't, doesn't have his act together at all. Most recently, again, uh, the, the the head of the director of the CDC just over overruled the the CDC uh, uh, group ASIP that that makes decisions about boosters. But anyway, regardless of what you think about boosters, it's it's just once again like just a patently political move where you're like, are, are any of these guys trustworthy at all? I mean, can you really just believe anything that anyone says? anymore. And, and, uh, I think Maseus would say everyone's in America has already come to that conclusion. And so where we're at now is the next stage, which is like, okay, well, we're not just going to wallow in, in our inability to understand the truth. Instead, we're going to make truth, baby. <laughs> you know, we're we're yeah. going to create it ourselves. 
Yeah, maybe maybe you and I are relics, uh, and that's why that seems weird to us. But maybe that's how maybe that is how people are living. Because you know, as I as I read this, I, I it was a lot like um, like Neil Postman's book, "Amusing Ourselves to Death," which Messiah uh, cites a few times in here. Um, it just made me feel like ah, that can't be true, right? It's we're not all that bad. We're not all living in reality, but maybe we are. I mean, it does seem the way we the way we construct narratives i mean there aren't narratives there's just things that are happening you know there's there's trends in history there's themes but there's these are ways of interpreting they're not actual things happening it's that's how you write the book years later it's not actually how you live it except now we're living it there was a line uh from cicero that is uh essay quam videri that became uh this the state motto of north carolina it is to be rather than to seem and I think uh, in the classical world and even in the neoclassical world of the of the founding fathers, this was obviously a good thing to to be the thing that you're saying, not just to look the part, but to actually be, yeah. to actually do, to actually perform. Where ever, everyone knew that this that reality was a thing; it was constant, and living in that reality was much better than pretending. I, I don't I don't know that that it would be as widely recognized as a, as an obvious virtue today. Um, but uh, it's the, Messiah seems to think that it's uh, dead as a virtue and that we're just, we're moving on to something new and it's, it's weird and unreal. Well, I, I think you would argue that that's actually in some ways a good thing. There's, there's some downsides to it, but the upside is in, in a, in a world of unreality, then, you can let a thousand flowers bloom, you know, where Europe, he's got this great, great quote where he says in Europe, freedom is approved as an abstract possibility, but on condition that it should not be used. <laughs> in yeah, other words, right. uh, the, the, the liberal promise, the enlightenment project promise is, uh, individual freedom. But what, uh, what, what the Europeans and some others would say is like, Yes, but you can't use it because it's too scary. You know, like we we need we need to keep it under uh, keep it under lid. And what Maseus I think is would argue to, to back to what you were just arguing is that I think he would say this is actually a good thing because we're not going to be able to keep the keep the lid on the pot anymore anyway. So we're moving into a new zone, and uh, we can either try to like keep squeezing different parts of the balloon and, uh, and things will keep escaping. Or we can say, look, the Overton window has grown on all sides and you know what? That's okay. You know, you just have your own reality, but the only thing we're going to say is, uh, at the end of the day, it's still unreal and you can't take it to extremes or whatever. Now, how that would, how that would cash out in practice seems, uh, problematic at, 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 the, at the very least, but in some ways that, I think it's just a really unique thought and, and compelling to me to say at this point, we've realized that the end of history is not the enlightenment, uh, liberal, um, uh, utopia, at least it's not for many people. And so rather than, I mean, we're going to fight these culture wars, but it's a completely new culture war instead of, instead of the culture war of, of religion versus non-religion, it's sort of like my reality versus your reality. And I think what he's arguing is, let's just let a thousand realities bloom as long as we just kind of keep it fenced in. And, and as, as long as it, it, it comes under the, uh, I mean, what well, we have one rule, which is like, 
this can't become too real. You know, you can do your thing, but you, you need to be able to enter and exit anytime you want. And it can't get too big. <laughs> mm-hmm. Pretty interesting. Yeah. It's a uh, terrifying, but possibly accurate look at contemporary society. All right. Well, I think uh, we're pretty over time. So that's Maseus. Catch us next time.